Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. On today's episode, we have our guest, Andrew Zwerneman with Kena Academy, and we're going to mostly be talking about history and the approach to teaching history in classical schools. And I would like to have Andrew introduce himself to you, uh, tell us a little background about yourself, Andrew, and about Kena Academy and why uh, Kena Academy is a very important uh, institution for the classical education world. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you so much, Adrian. It's just a real privilege and a pleasure to be here with you. And I'm so enamored of the work that you're doing. And uh, I, I think we met on uh, your wonderful Facebook page for classical education. And uh, I just I just love what you're doing. I um, am just very pleased that so much great life is being pumped into the classical education movement there from Northern Texas. And uh, you're you're a real important uh, Texan and all that, and we, we need more Texan life like that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm excited about your work at Kena Academy, and I want our listeners to know more about you, your background, and, and your work. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, I'm happy to say a little something about that. I'm, I'm a longtime teacher. In fact, when I finally retired from teaching in a school proper, I was teaching ancient history for seventh graders and humane letters. Uh, a humane letters seminar for 12th graders, but my my little ones, my seventh grade ancient history students called me their ancient history teacher because <laughs> I've been up there in years. Uh, I've been so I've been teaching since 1983. Um, I married a gal in uh, 86, uh, Jeanette Desell, who co-founded Trinity School of Greenlawn, one of the signature schools at the beginning of the classical education movement. Uh, she recruited me to the faculty there, and well, I, I found. Um, my calling as a teacher, and uh, we found each other and our calling uh, to be married, and we have three great kids. So we've both been teaching all those years and devoted our, our lives to family and to teaching and to building schools. I was blessed to be able to cut my teeth as a headmaster twice, once at Tempe Prep in the late 90s. Uh, I went there in the second year and helped develop Tempe Prep, and I hired a bunch of people, um, some of whom ended up founding uh, Great Hearts. And uh, I'm very glad that some of that that DNA was passed on and kind of exploded into the great heart scene. Um, helped develop uh, Trinity schools further for 17 years. I was the headmaster of Trinity School at Meadowview in Falls Church, Virginia. I was on the national management team. And uh, during that time, I, I opened an LLC to help other startup schools get going. So we helped Thomas McLaren Charter School in Colorado Springs uh, get going, and we helped Trinity Academy, which is a private ecumenical Christian school in Portland, Oregon, get up and running. And I've consulted with a lot of schools and mentored headmasters and things like that. But seven years ago, uh, two of my fellow master teachers and I uh, decided we were going to retire from schools proper. But um, I had running legs for at least one more major creative project uh, in my life, and uh, I prayed for it for some time. And 
I got this idea to start Kane Academy to be an academy for teachers um, and to not only pump life into schools, but also to find ways to bring classical education creatively into sectors where it would not normally be. So, for example, we've had a, a very nice program for uh, communities of seniors. We've gone into church um, meeting halls where the seniors gather. We've gone into uh, retirement communities, and we've put on a series of programs we call Visions, which are uh, programs that introduce um, our senior neighbors to great art and great music and great history. And uh, we went into it thinking that we we're going to run seminars on literature. You know, we had this brilliant idea. And I went to a, a retirement community, a very large one in northern Indiana, and I uh, did a little survey. And to a man and to a woman, they didn't want anything to do with it. I said, well, what do you want? He said, well, we want art. We want history. We want music. And we don't want to do any homework. <laughs> so I said, okay, we can do that. So we created sessions that are, you know, built into the presentations. And we, we present beautiful slides uh, or put on musical programs and then, you know, have some measure of discussion, conversation with our friends. Uh, you know, and I've consulted with a, a number of programs that are serving uh, the poor across America on uh, Native Indian reservations, uh, on some of the poorest zip codes in some of our southern cities and so forth. And uh, we, we're, we're always looking to see uh, where we would have an opportunity to help people experience the very best kind of education. And we're very adaptive. Um, my whole team is Christian. Uh, my co-founder and I are both Catholics, uh, but we're an ecumenical outfit, and we um, so we operate as an ecumenical mission, which serves anyone. So anybody who wants to, to do a better job at education, uh, it could be a Catholic school, an evangelical school, ecumenical, a public charter school, homeschoolers. I've actually dealt with people who are kind of generally agnostic, but uh, they they see the splendor of, of a great education. And um, sometimes people take what we have kind of piecemeal like they want to have great discussions around great books and they go oh well let's go with Kane academy even though they have no particular or or no broader uh affinity for the classical education movement we we took our name uh obviously partly from the gospel the gospel of john the account of the wedding feast of cana but more immediately we took it from the brothers karamazov which might be the the greatest novel in modern history and the major uh, protagonist there is Alyosha. Uh, they're all important characters. Uh, all, all the brothers and their father are all really important characters. Um, but Alyosha goes through a terrible crisis at every level of his person. And uh, in the middle of that crisis, a dream version of the Wedding Feast of Cana story uh, snaps him out of that crisis. And he recovers his bearings in a difficult world. And the world didn't stop being difficult for him. It's just that he now had bearings. He knew how to love his, his crazy father, love his his tormented brothers, love the, the little uh, the, the, the schoolboys who seemed to be partly fatherless and kind of rudderless uh, in, his, in his village. And uh, he knew how to love. He knew how to serve. He knew how to find his way. So we're dedicated uh, in two ways to the Cana story. Number one, we want to provide an abundance of the very best, or like the abundance of all that good wine that uh, Jesus provided. I and love we that. We want to be super attentive to the way Mary uh, was, and and uh, we want to be restorative uh, the way the story was to Alyosha. And we want to help uh, men and women of goodwill find their bearings in a, in a difficult world. Uh, and it is a difficult world that we live in. Um, and we all know it as, as teachers and as students, as parents. It's a challenge to... Uh, 
to lead uh, young people uh, in the right way uh, because it's it's a world in which uh, a lot of what we used to rely on has been lost. And what's so powerful and so beautiful about the classical education movement is that we're remembering, recollecting, practicing uh, things that were old, but we're doing it in new, fresh ways. That's right. That's right. I also immediately noticed your logo as looking similar to Albert Durer's signature. Uh, was that un intentional? Because I love Albert Durer. He's one of my top five favorite artists. And so I immediately saw that connection. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you saw that. Um, uh, my family was in uh, Siena, Italy, and we went to a museum and we saw this beautiful painting. Uh, and um, in the lower right-hand corner was the signature of the artist. And uh, it was very similar to our logo. I think the painting was from the uh, 14th century. Uh, so it preceded uh, Albrecht Durer. We were mostly inspired by the arts and crafts movement. And uh, so the the tables are very arts and crafts kind of table, very Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, Stickley, that kind of thing. So mostly we were inspired by that. And we wanted to go with something that was modern, but something very beautiful, something that had to do with the art of uh, doing things, uh, not not so much the abstractions or the idealistic. And uh, so right. we're, we're, we're practitioners. We're, we're artists of running seminars, teaching writing, teaching history, looking at paintings and so forth. I love that. I love that. This is exactly where you're right. My heart is with you. I'm right there with you. Um, well, I want to start, I think what would help our audience is to have you, because you've written a lot of, I've been reading through your materials, have you explained to them the connection between classical education and the word and the phrase liberal arts because that phrase has been very um distorted in this century and so i'd like you to define liberal arts and how it should be giving students the best experience yeah well that's a great question uh, a little complex but I, let me see if i can distill our approach so <clears throat> maybe more than most practitioners i spent a lot of time talking about the classical origins and the liberal purposes of a great education and that kind of helps us frame what we mean by arts and by sciences uh, by classical uh, we mean a couple of things <clears throat> number one uh, the immediate invocation is of ancient greece and ancient rome uh, because um, to talk about classical studies or classicists were typically talking about Greek and Latin culture or Greek and Roman culture. It's also the case, however, that we are Westerners and the West doesn't come into full bloom until under the impulse of Latin Christianity. And that means Athens and Jerusalem converge in ancient Rome. And from there on, we, we start to get the, the full breadth of, um, both a classical education and what we mean by a liberal education. Uh, now, the father of the liberal arts and science is Aristotle. And uh, however, this, uh, and, and of course, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, um, for all the wondrous contribution they made, uh, and, and they tried to reform a highly uh, devolving and increasingly corrupt Athens, and they failed, which is not which is not a, a finger pointing at them, but rather, and perhaps it's it's just a recognition of how utterly corrupt Athens became. Well, what's so fantastic is that the whole philosophical tradition, everything that we get out of ancient Greece had a second chance, and boy, did it, because guys like Ambrose, Augustine, Aquinas, and others pick it up, 
and and they wed it to the deep tradition that comes out at Jerusalem, namely the tradition of faith. So we have the faith-seeking understanding, understanding-seeking faith. Um, Aristotle, arguably more than anyone else in history, had the breadth of the whole liberal mind. That is, you know, he 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 lectured and wrote on biology, zoology, politics, physics, metaphysics, uh, uh, you name it, just about any rhetoric, poetry, just about any sphere of inquiry. Uh, it's interesting, I, I say this up front in my book that, uh, on my book on history, that one of the puzzling features of Aristotle, one of the puzzling features of our movement is that the father of the liberal arts and sciences never worked up history as either an art or a science. Now, by by art, let me reverse that. By science, he meant an organized body of knowledge. And uh, the the level of inquiry had a level of precision and a, and a logic to it that some other studies don't. Uh, and so, you know, early on in the ethics and in the politics, Aristotle says you can you can measure in mathematics and in and you know things like physics and biology in ways you can't in ethics and politics. Which is not to say they're not true; it's just to say they're they're more uh, difficult to measure. Then you get to something like poetry, and poetry is an art or rhetoric, which is an art, right? Now, it's still a discipline. And the, the arts and the science are all what we call liberal disciplines. And, and what do we mean by liberal? What we mean by liberal is that it's, an, it's the, the disciplines uh, uh, which constitute the whole of an education are for not only historically a free person, but it's meant to make somebody who's not free, free. So we're born with free will, but we're not born with that interior freedom of intellectual, spiritual, and moral freedom that we, we want our students to attain and that we spend our lives trying to, to grow in. So that's what I mean by liberal. That's what I mean by the arts and the sciences. Um, one of my uh, intellectual mentors, I never met him, but one of the most important historians for me was Bernard Balin. And in, I think, the second to the last or the last book that he wrote, it was a collection of essays, and he called it Sometimes an Art. And uh, I think that's what history is. I think it's it's an art. Mortimer Adley used to like to say, you put your finger or your pen underneath the story in history. And... Uh, the, the principal mode of, of our historical tradition is historical narrative, right? The historian tells a story. Okay. Now, it, it's not fictional. So it's not, as Aristotle says, um, um, poetry, which includes all imaginative literature, is about what could be. Philosophy is about what is. And history, when he talks about it, and he doesn't talk about it in great detail, is about what was. So when we talk about history, we're not talking about what is and we're not talking about what could be the historian reaches back in history and tries to, to put events together and um it's got a it's got a cooler more objective mind perhaps than the uh, the poet's mind which is not to say the poet is not dealing in truth uh it, it is to say that the the poet is not dealing in in something um as expository as the historian is mm -hmm. yeah well I'm concerned with the assault to what liberal arts really is in our modern culture. And I think a lot of uh, parents who um, are pursuing classical education may get confused when they hear liberal arts because, I mean, I went to Kent State University. It was a liberal arts university, but I didn't experience a classical education there. And so I appreciate you explaining that. And um, I think that is very important. And in your book, 
I want I want to get into dive into your book called History Forgotten and Remembered, which I think very important book, and I hope our listeners will um, grab a copy of this. It's very very um, interesting. We do have a a problem, I think, across the board, and I know you would agree based on what you wrote in this book with how we're approaching history. Um, I'd like you to unpack what that problem is in how we're approaching history, and then walk. And then I'm going to ask you some specific questions about how we should be approaching history. Yeah, well, the I think the chief assault on on history is an assault on us as persons. We, we are inherently historical critters, and you might start with Augustine's Anthropology, where he describes the the soul of the human person as a tripart. And it's not that there are layers of it, it's it's all working at the same time, but he distinguishes between um, will or love, uh, knowledge or understanding, and then thirdly, memory. And the memory is where um, the person collects what he knows and loves. So memory is absolutely critical to what it means to kind of keep yourself together. We think about a human being who who loses his integrity. You know, he forgets who he is. He forgets his roots. He he forgets his wife. He forgets his his work, and uh, he abandons uh, his place in the world. Uh, he forgets the he forgets his lord, and uh, he you know, and uh, he he forgets his manners. And you know, forgetfulness can be very toxic. It can be very um, corrosive to a human life. Uh, and sometimes forgetfulness is used as a, a kind of um, a necessary condition in order to manipulate people toward uh, ends that are opposed to the past. So the number one job that um, the assailants of our history try to do is to divorce us from our past. Why, why is that? Why, why would they try to separate us from our past? Well, if we forget who we are, then... Uh, there's uh, the bonds that keep us together, each to the other, and, and, and you know the unity across generations between the dead, the living, and the yet to be born. All these things are fractured, and uh, it makes us more um, uh, open to being manipulated toward other ends. Uh, Marx uh, says in the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844 that a good socialist never asks a question about origins. Well, well, why? Because our origins are are not our origins are both from within us, which means from our forebears and what they passed on to us. Our origins are also from beyond us. So you think about the the great transcendent foundation in uh, the birth of philosophy, and of course the transcendent foundation that we see in Revelation. The the two chief sources of normative authority in the West are from ancient Greece and ancient Israel, philosophy and revelation, respectively. Well, those are all about origins. And um, and, and Marx would divorce us from that because um, if we're still attached to that, we're still attached to things like understanding and wisdom. We're still attached to the love of God and pouring out our lives for our neighbor and so forth. But that has nothing to do with the revolution. And but what so what he does once he once he gets rid of that kind of thing he says look I want to tell you what history is it has nothing to do with origins it has to do with exploitation and exploitation means there are exploiters and there are those who are exploited there are oppressors and there are the oppressed and he he redefines humans entirely in terms of that division 
So as he says in the opening line of the Communist Manifesto, all history is the history of class struggle. Well, that's pretty much Howard Zinn's lens on American history. That's pretty much the 1619 Project's lens on American history as well. That is, we, we are fundamentally divided between oppressor and oppressed, and it runs along the lines of class, gender, and race. Now, no one of those, all those categories are true in some respect. I mean, we are male and female. Uh, we, we do come from different ethnic backgrounds. We, we do, uh, there are real classes, but no one of those categories can adequately explain what it means to be a human person. That's why we need to pay attention to our origins. That is, we, we learn about ourselves by observing our forebears, and we learn about ourselves by availing ourselves of those divine sources, uh, wisdom, say, in the Greek tradition, and, of course, God, and uh, the incarnate God in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, but the the assault on history today is an attempt to say, no, all of history is exploitation. And instead of telling narratives about the whole of things, uh, they uh, tend to zero in on, on specific exploitative moments in either American or Western history and then and tease that out. And with a guy like uh, Howard Zinn, he basically tells the whole his, – his people's history of the United States is basically a catalog of exploitative moments. But and, and what that does is it reduces the whole past to, to uh, no good. The only good is in the future when we bring about a society that's going to end all that kind of exploitation. Now, I'll give you one example, and then we can you know, talk about something else. I'll give you an example to, to demonstrate how utterly weak his analysis is. Uh, he, in his chapter on World War II, he makes a moral equivalence between the United States, Nazi Germany, and the Soviet Union. Now, how does he do that? He says it's precisely because of, of things like uh, the segregation of the military. Because the military was segregated, he cannot bring himself to say anything laudatory about the military. And so our military is really no different than, say, the Soviet military, which dominates its members and dominates others through the military or the, or the Nazi regime and that kind of thing. So, you know, he does that kind of thing throughout his book. Uh, that's one example where everybody goes, oh, well, of course, that's problematic. The, the other thing he does is he said there's no such thing as a national community. There's no such thing as um, a, um, a, a state or a society like America. All you have are classes. And therefore, history is only the story of the class, the clash between the classes. But history is about societies which are organic things. They change. Uh, there's a lot of good. There are failings. Of course, there are failings. There, human will is... It's the center of history. <laughs> That's what's going on is people are doing what people do. And sometimes it's glorious and moves towards order and justice. And sometimes it's inglorious and move, moves toward uh, injustice and, uh, and disorder. But uh, the fragmentary historian will have nothing of the whole of things and will only look at the, the narrow um, events that can be defined in terms of exploitation. But history is a concept of unity like nature or being. It's how we get our minds and our arms around the whole of things. So we're looking at the whole, the, the past, yeah. the present, the future, the dead, the living, and the yet to be born. Um, mm -hmm. America's history from beginning to this moment, you know, et cetera. So that, that's how we look at things. And that's how important it is to to keep our, our eyes on, on the, the whole, not just the, the narrow or the fragment. Now, this is really good. I, so... To summarize very briefly, a, a very short bullet point of what I'm hearing is that history has been fragmented and 
politicized rather than being rooted in um, valuing humanity and having a memory that helps us to become better people. I mean, is that is that kind of what you're getting at? Sure it is. And that, that's a very good uh, underscoring that you did right there, that um, the fragmentarian not only fragments history, he fragments you and me. So we are less right. than who we are because there's nothing that really binds us from generation to generation to generation. So we're not inherently humans with a shared history, a shared human condition, a shared nature, a shared future, a shared hope. No, because uh, it's it's uh, all taken apart. And there's really one thing that defines us and that we're divided uh, on either side of history, we're divided, oppressors versus oppressed. Yeah, so this is a very inhumane way of teaching history. It's the way I learned history, honestly. And right. I never enjoyed history because it was exactly what you're saying. It, there was no way for me to make any type of connection as a human being to to and this is I'm, uh, this is a perfect segment into your into your book where you talk about um history approaching history should begin with observations which we as people should be learning to get better and better at observing paying attention and then um gathering this information through our observing and learning how to understand but then i love how you say in your book i'm going i'm actually going to read this it says the study of history is primarily intended to cultivate habits of the mind, wonder, inquiry, discovery, knowledge, and understanding, each with the past as its object. Again, first and foremost, history is observational. So then you go into talking about how history is sympathetic and not judgmental. And I just love this. I've never thought of history in this way. So for teachers, what does that look like? How do you approach history from this observational perspective, gathering information, understanding, and sympathizing? How do you do that? Yeah, um, I think that, uh, well, first of all, let's embrace the idea that we learn about ourselves by observation. We, we all see this, say, in the development uh, of a baby boy or girl, that the 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 kid is held in... Uh, mom's arms, dad's arms, the siblings' arms, grandparents, the extended family, and looks into the face of uh, his or her mother and and father and the siblings, and uh, hears us speaking and uh, imitates us, and then slowly but surely it dawns on the baby what the words mean, and and, and uh, the little kid starts to use the words, employs them quite accurately. It's a, it's a way of engaging us. It's a way of engaging the world. And uh, there's a magnificent intellection, even in, in a little kid that goes on. and uh, But that was all learned through observation. Uh, we learn about ourselves by um, uh, pouring through the scriptures or hearing family stories, uh, looking through uh, photo albums when when granny or, or granddad was young, you know, and they had a scrapbook, and then you gather, and all the grandkids are gathered again, they're looking through these pictures from the 19. 20s or 30s and oh wow so and they're saying oh look at that and that's where you came from and oh look at that man he he looks like um he looks like my dad will say yeah that's your dad's great uncle you know and you know you see that and you start to yeah. put things together right and is it oh i heard that 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 um my um my grandmother 
you know, uh, worked in the civil service during World War II, and I never really understood what that looked like until I saw the photo album and so forth. So we learn a lot about ourselves uh, in those kinds of ways uh, through observation. What a, what an historian does is to reach back into history and put the events together to the best of his ability, piecing together all the facts, all the best assessments, all the maps, all the narratives, and uh, and he works through um, a handful of major components. For one thing, he'll look through uh, imagery, just like I described the family looking through a photo album. Mm -hmm. uh, he'll look at photographs of, of important places and persons. He'll look at portraiture in, in paint or in sculpture. Um, he'll look at maps, uh, recent maps, maps from antiquity and so forth. He'll, he'll Secondly, he'll look at data. And he'll, he'll, for example, he'll look at, uh, you know, how many pots were produced by Athens each of the, the centuries, you know, ninth, eighth, seventh, sixth, fifth, you know, Athens made a fortune with their pottery. And you can see it progress in quality over the course of that time. Um, there, are, there are maps of trade routes, and he'll be interested in, the historian will be interested to see what was sold where and, you know, by what trade route. He'll look at demographic shifts. Uh, he'll look at gross domestic products. Um, it's interesting that during World War II, the United States lapped all the allies collectively in terms of gross domestic product. And um, one of the reasons we could recover from Pearl Harbor as rapidly as we did is not only because the, the Japanese failed to attack us a third time that day, but it's it's also because our economy, even though it was still in the Depression, was so robust that we could produce as no other country in the world could produce. And uh, we just became a, a production machine in terms of uh, armaments uh, and military um, uh, equipment. So, uh, so, and then thirdly, uh, he will look at, um, uh, individual and group narratives, you know, a biography or an eyewitness account, or he'll look at all the notes from the Puritans who kept notes on everything. He'll, he'll listen to, um, personal testimonies or, or biographies of former slaves. You can go to the library of Congress and listen to their interviews in turn of the century, uh, of the turn of the last century recordings, uh, those are the kinds of things he'll work up. And then finally, he'll work up structural analyses. In other words, he'll, you know, Aristotle modeled this for any historian worth his salt. He he, he read all 156 constitutions that anybody could get his hands on in, in antiquity. He compared and contrasted them and distilled them into six major polities, six uh, major types. And an historian will do that too. He'll look through all the all the examples of whatever it is he's looking at, all the letters by a president, all the exchanges between two scientists, um, um, all the uh, reports at a particular battle and that kind of thing. And uh, in the, you know, uh, Thucydides was there at many of the events, but then he would rely on reliable sources to report to him. And then he said, well, this probably is what was said at these events, given what was reported to me and given my my trust in that person and so forth and uh, but in the you know in the in our sector in our time we we would rely more on on little harder evidence rather than just a secondhand um reportage um and the, and so the historian is actually working with real stuff putting together the story and then retelling it in a way that helps us all see what's happened and uh, what's happened is that there's a society that's moving in time and it's changing so he was recording the first the eruptive changes that happened, the big ones like crossing the Rubicon or the bombing of Pearl Harbor or uh, Gutenberg's printing press, discovery philosophy, you know, uh, uh, the spreading of Christianity in the early centuries of the church. All these are eruptive events that change civilization forever. 
Uh, and then he's looking at subsequent changes that happen and at the residues of those changes around us. Uh, and, you know, so we we look around us and we, you know, we see monuments, we see architecture from hundreds of years ago. We we see um, uh, church towers that were, you know, built by our ancestors, the first first Christians in the in the in the country, or we see old synagogues in downtown Old Town Alexandria or downtown uh you know, New York City, and uh, we go to the Tenement House Museum in, in Lower Manhattan, and we look at where uh, Yiddish or, or or Jewish, Russian immigrants, German immigrants, Italian immigrants, or Irish immigrants all lived in very constrained environments, and and uh, we we learn about their stories and what they ate and where they worshipped and uh, where they sent their kids to school and and how they made livings and so forth. And all this is terribly interesting because it's part of our story. It's not just their story, it's our story. And uh, that's what an historian does. He pieces all together. On the sympathetic side of the house, we need to avoid things like uh, thinking anachronistically, superimposing our way of thinking on previous generations. One of the things that Balin and Gordon Wood are so good about is teaching us to think of the past and its pastness. That's the trick of the trade. It's singularly the one thing I think that people screw up the most is, is they, they try to think of the past as the present, where it's not, it's the past. And and uh, But we approach it sympathetically, which is not to say we don't approach it uh, without thinking hard. It's that we approach it knowing that people have suffered. That's the first act of sympathy is to suffer with someone else. But sympathy also means to have an affinity for all things human. So we see humans working out living uh, they're living in uh, you know difficult circumstances. We encounter war, disease. Um, they travel long distances. They invent things. They invent beautiful works of art. They invent uh, clever ways to farm land. They uh, create languages, ways to translate things like uh, New Testament Greek into German. You know, and the rest is history. You know, as any good Lutheran would tell you, um, all these things are terribly important. Uh, but we have to not um, sit in a, in a condemnatory way toward our forebears, even though they failed. We're all human. We all fail. Everybody right. has free will, so they're going to. Every human life has, you know, parts of it that are laudatory and parts of it that we regret. But uh, and our forebears are no different. So we have to read the past sympathetically. But but we but but we don't read it without um, right judgment. I don't mean right judgment as in uh condemning them i mean right judgment said how ought we feel how, what what right. is the truth of things and uh, we allow the historian to form our judgments both in terms of how we think and observe and how we feel about our forebears and uh, feeling in the bench says being uh, sympathy that is having a f we, we can't exactly walk in their shoes but we can certainly move with them in our minds, in our minds, we can recreate what happened uh, at the feet of a good historian. That's what it means to to do history observationally and sympathetically. I love that. So, do you have resources on your website that have lessons that could help a teacher see how how you would approach a history lesson in this way? Or do you have any examples that you would walk the students through a specific event in history yeah. in this way of teaching them to observe, attend, and look at the situation sympathetically rather than judgmentally. Because we really are in this era where history is definitely being approached from a very judgmental perspective. And it's not beautiful at all. It's not good. And it's not true. 
Yeah. So I have a number of blog posts. Uh, you know, they're probably 20 blog posts on our site that have to do with history and how to how to read it. Um, they're not lessons as such. Occasionally, there uh, you'll find something like um, how to teach the Battle of Saratoga uh, using the fundamentals of historical observation, and um, that's you know that's a pretty good exercise. Or how to use uh, maps, um, how to devise a brief. How do you help your students devise a brief historical narrative? So instead of giving my students an exam when they're in seventh grade at the end of a unit on Greece, I have them write a, a brief historical narrative in which they have to um, articulate major events uh, under a handful of categories that are formed by an acronym, GRAPES. And uh, I give them GRAPES because uh, each letter in the word GRAPES uh, constitutes one of the major features of any civilization. G stands for geography. So any civilization is somewhere. It's formed by mountains or plains or or uh, tropical climate, or you know, tundra climate, uh, rivers, lakes, oceans, etc. Um, uh, every civilization has religion, so it's G R. Uh, a is for arts, which mean the fine arts, the industrial arts, and the practical arts. Fine arts being painting, say, industrial arts being um, uh, you know uh, how uh, buildings are built, you know how uh, carpentry. So. Uh, stone masonry and things like that and then um uh, practical arts would be something like cooking and mm -hmm. uh and uh you know part of the fun of history is is learning what how foods were made and you know and what uh, products they had at their fingertips so that's gra and then p stands for politics everywhere you have civilization you have people organized under law under someone who rules and and uh you know the demographics of politics is always limited to some extent. You can have an empire, which might have a million or more people in it, and you might have a polis, which only has the 25, 35,000 people in it. Smaller city-states like um, um, Siena and, uh, and Florence, uh, but then you have the larger uh, papal states and uh, Lombardy and, you know, things like that. Um, uh, and then, so that's politics, and then E stands for economics or economy. And uh, you know, everybody has to make a living. They they grow things, they make things, they sell things, they buy things, they move things by certain uh, transportational uh, means. And finally, are the sciences, which include uh, the sciences um, as in uh, philosophy, the sciences as in physics, the sciences as in engineering. So we cover the um, the theoretical work of an Aristotle working with, through physics or a Newton or an Einstein, it would also cover uh, the sciences that are applied. So the Romans building um, aqueducts uh, or, um, uh, you know, the cotton gin later on, the uh, the uh, combustion engine and so forth. So, uh, and, and it's very helpful. The kids, um, Kids tend to, with, you know, without moorings, they tend to think of history as just one thing after another. And if you ask yeah. them well, what civilization, they could probably name a civilization, but what is a civilization? They tend to not know. So I always give them, oh, you get grapes. And then once you know grapes, you can look for the major features of any civilization at any time in history. Uh, I, but I generally have used it with little ones who are studying ancient history and uh, ancient civilizations. And, and so at the end of each unit, I have them write a brief history and I give them questions germane to each of the letters and grapes. And that gives them an organizational principle and they crank that out and it includes imagery, includes narratives, includes data, 
and includes uh, some understanding of structure like uh, comparative laws between Sparta and Athens, say, or uh, laws from democratic to tyrannical uh, Athens, and uh, how that shifts depending on uh, who rules. I love this. This is great. Um, we'll make sure to get some links in the show notes for people to look all of this up. This is wonderful. So I know that a lot of your materials are geared more towards sixth through 12th grade, but you just mentioned right. something about working with younger. Are you thinking, are you working with K through five students with this as well? Occasionally. Yeah. And, and uh, that exercise um, I just did could, could easily slip down into some of the lower grades. Uh, I'm not so keen on the, the more formal features, even of seventh and sixth and fifth grade history with say first and second grade, mm -hmm. that tends to be straight narrative, you know, reading really good stories that are historical rather than kind of working up um, mm -hmm. the, the stuff up that historians <laughs> works up. I think, um, I, I think, it, I mean, there's no magic bullet here, but I think fifth grade is a pretty good place to start with um, what I would call formal history. You know, when you actually start, having the students understand how things are put together. You start having them write historical narratives that that weave in uh, all the things that I mentioned in so the Grapes Projects. Mm -hmm. So for the younger ones, when you say story, um, what do you mean by that? Do you mean literature that maybe is from that era, from that time, or stories in general just that help them learn how to be a person? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm blanking on the names a little bit. I, I want to say, is it Dodelaire who who wrote such beautiful? Uh, oh, Dolaire, yes, Dolaire, yes, the Dolaires, yes. Yeah, so I'm thinking about things like that. And um, the uh, it's true that some literature is written uh, as historical fiction, but I wouldn't replace history as such with historical fiction. I think for little ones, there are history books that are written very similarly to. Um, a fictional book. And I think that is a very good way for kids to get into history. I and love that. Yeah, they're great. There are all sorts of little sources that are, are quite helpful. Yeah. And for our listeners who know how much I love Charlotte Mason, what he's saying is very much how Charlotte Mason wanted children to learn history when they're young. That's great. That is so beautiful. Um, is there anything else we need to talk about here? I Your book has so much meat in it, and I don't even know what, what are we missing that we need to cover that's in this book. I, I wouldn't mind spending a little more time talking about memory. <laughs> okay, sure, yeah. Um, but if there's something else that we need to really hit on, that you can I'm think not sure. of, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go where where you want to <laughs> go on this. And yeah, uh, one thing we could say about memory is that um, uh, I think I've learned most of what I think about memory from Augustine and from other scholars who have written beautifully about Augustine. But one thing about memory that I, I found really helpful that I learned from Bernard Balin, uh, Balin, uh, I mentioned earlier, but uh, let me say a little more about him. He just died a couple of years ago. And, and for about 50 or 60 years, he was the granddaddy of American historians. And he dominated the field uh, in of colonial American history. And he, he was at Harvard. Uh, and uh, was a, a beautiful writer and, and such a, a live mind. And um, one thing that he wrote uh, toward the end of his life is that um, we you don't want to make um, strong lines between history and memory. But he would say in history, there's there's a cooler, more objective emphasis. 
uh, with memory, it's more visceral. It tends to be more personal. Memory has a way of kind of catching you by surprise. So you you be somewhere and all of a sudden you remember something and you go, oh yeah, I remember my mom that day, my late mother, you know, and you go, oh, well. And, and it's not that you just read a book or it's not even that you just saw a picture, just out of the blue, your, your memory spurs you uh, to a, a recollection and, and to um, a reflection, maybe, maybe even to uh, uh, a feeling. And he says, uh, the memory of, of the past sometimes is, is really uh, glorious. Like um, my family and I visited the World War II, the National World War II Museum in New Orleans this summer. And um, it, it, you, we just, all of us, all of us, my, uh, my three children, my wife, my son-in-law, and I all came away just uh, struck again by the, the sacrifice, the ingenuity, the nobility of the allied cause. And they came away with um, a conviction that Eisenhower stated, there's a, a beautiful plaque that you see early on in the uh, in the museum where Eisenhower had, it's a quotation from a letter he wrote to his son, John, in 1943. And um, he said, I, I have sort of one abiding conviction about the war and that more than any other war in all of history, it's really a, a war uh, where the two sides represent uh, liberty and individual rights on the one side and an assault on them uh, from the other. And uh, we all, you know, going through the story of the World War II Museum, which was largely designed by the late historian Stephen Ambrose, who a lot of people will know is the author of um, Undaunted Courage, the story of uh, Lewis and Clark, and The Band of Brothers, which was the story of Company E during, uh, you know, uh, D-Day and beyond uh, in uh, World War II. Uh, it's just a great museum. And, and so our memories were stirred. Uh, they were stirred the way... Um, uh, they were stirred when I watched the Band of Brothers. Uh, they were stirred when I watched Ken Burns' The Civil War series. Uh, they were they were stirred uh, the way that, um, frankly, they're stirred when I visit uh, one of my grandparents or great grandparents' uh, grave sites, and uh, you know, in the little memory that I have of any of them, or you know, uh, as I piece together stories about some of them whom I never even met. Uh, it's it, it's so moving. It's so powerful. I, my son and I found my great grandfather's gravesite in Round Top, Texas, last summer, and um, it was it was so exciting to find it in that cemetery. And we we didn't we knew where the cemetery was. We found that we didn't know which plot, and so we we had a, a picture from the uh, from an online uh, an account. And so we were looking through, we had that little picture with her, we were looking through the whole center <laughs> trying to find that particular gravestone. And, you know, there were hundreds of gravestones. And it was so powerful to, to have, uh, you know, three of the handful of generations that have been here in the United States uh, of the Zornemans uh, there on that day. But memory sometimes is also very painful. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, in any genealogy, we learn about, you know, somebody doing something dastardly and we go, oh, gee, it's just so sad that that's part of our clan's history. We look back at American history and, you know, we just are hit between the eyes by the assault on um, on or the enslavement of blacks uh, and then their segregation, uh, the uh, maluse of uh, immigrants coming over the, the Mexican border, uh, the assault on the unborn. Um, we, we just are... It's just it's just a terribly uh, sad 
a, a source of um, of recollection. We take the example of uh, slavery. The the fact that millions of African Americans were brought over here, and uh, at the peak of American slavery, there were four million Black Americans who were enslaved. This is a terribly painful part of our our history, especially for Blacks. And and it, and, it, and as Valen says, it bubbles underneath the surface of of all of our discussions of history, uh, culture, uh, public policy, and so forth. Um, but is it without hope? I, I don't think so, because then you you get it, it's the history is punctuated by individuals like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. Uh, Frederick Douglass, who called the Constitution a glorious liberty document. Harriet Tubman, who risked her life time and time and time again to bring slaves into the freedom of the North. You get a, a Martin Luther King Jr., excuse me, who so eloquently articulated how the American founding was not just a time of American slavery, it was a time of American liberty. And the, the liberty articulated by the founders, which included all those Virginians who owned slaves, Washington, Madison, uh, the Lees, uh, uh, Patrick Henry, uh, Monroe, uh, George Mason, and of course, Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson being the, the principal author of the Declaration and Madison, the principal author of the Constitution, still... Um, King didn't reject all of that because they were slaveholders, because of the incredible uh, evil that slavery was. He embraced the freedoms and said, those are freedoms that are human. And he recognized they were rooted in the Bible. They were rooted in natural law. They were rooted in the heroism of great men and women who gave their lives for freedom over the years. They were rooted in the American founding. He said, we need to bring it up to our own time. The promissory note of the founding needs to be paid finally so that everybody will live in freedom and, and what kind of society did he dream of? Not one of equity and so forth, but rather one in which everyone is is not judged by the skin color, but their skin color, but rather by their character, which meant in liberal or classical terms, their intellectual, moral, and spiritual freedom, that interior freedom that expressed in their lives and uh, recognized with um, both observation and sympathy, by the way. And he said, that's the way we, we should look at the past. There's no better exemplar of observational and sympathetic history than that, uh, maybe with the exception of Lincoln, who looked back at the founding and said, and when he spoke at the Gettysburg Address, he said, uh, nah, he didn't speak in terms of self-evident truths. He spoke in terms of propositions. Self-evident truths are axiomatic. You don't need to prove them. But propositions need to be proven. Why so? Because of slavery. And so we have to free the slave and we have to free the slaveholder by freeing the slave. And then we need to defeat the Confederacy or, you know, not in that order, in reverse order. Uh, although the emancipation came before uh, the proclamation anyway, came before the end of the war. Mm -hmm. But all that is to say, he looked at the, the founding soberly and said, These, this is true. And yet it needs to be proven again. And so the, the the men who died at Gettysburg gave the last full measure of their manhood because the price they paid was for the freedom of those who would live on. The the black slave who would now be asleep, uh, be free, the 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 slave owner who would now be free from slaveholding and uh, the country from division. And and then you know in, in his near his his end, you know, he said we need to move forward and with malice toward none and charity toward all, which again is an invocation of something deeply human that we have that in common. And it makes no sense. Like it makes no sense to forgive 
it makes no sense to move forward and and uh, and secure the freedom of everyone if we don't believe in the freedom of everyone. And we can't possibly believe in the freedom of everyone if we don't believe that there's a common humanity. And uh, that's what King and the founders and, and Lincoln did so beautifully in our own tradition. Yes, and it's immediately making me think about, I, I do a seminar at teacher trainings on uh, James Weldon Johnson's poem called 50 Years, Looking Back. Yeah. And it, it's an absolutely beautiful poem. And when I do this poem, I have, we read it three times, once aloud, once quietly. And, and then I kind of do the popcorn reading where they all read a little bit, <laughs> uh, stanza by stanza. And it's just a, a very beautiful way to help them understand, like you're saying in your book, you're, ob you're observing, yeah. you're remembering through a poem. Yeah. And so when you talk in your book about the senses, you say something specifically about tapping into the senses, which is beautiful. I wonder if I, I can, yeah, here it is. As with most difficult objects of study, one way to grasp history more clearly is to approach it by way of an image. In this case, it might help to have a past event or two brought alive through the senses. That's exactly what poetry does. And you bring up a poem by uh, Seamus Haney as well, just as an example. I think uh, I would love for history teachers to feel comfortable with art, music, and poetry in their class. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do is help history teachers embrace the arts because it is so, it is how we tap into that sympathetic nature and approach history, I think. I love that that's what you're doing. Yeah, I, I didn't spend a lot of time on poetry in the book. And I, I brought up the Seamus Heaney poem as an exercise in how someone looking back yeah. and observing his father and, and grandfather discovered something about himself. The major story that I used in the introduction is is kind of a bit of history that Heaney expounds on in his beautiful Nobel laureate address. And that's um, history from the middle of the Irish civil war. And he tells a, a really a, a powerful story about um, a, a busload of workers going home one day and they're pulled over by some terrorists and uh, everybody's told to line up and, and they asked all the Catholics to step forward. And so the assumption was that, uh, these were Catholic terrorists. They're going to uh, mow down uh, uh, the, um, I'm sorry, that they were Protestant uh, terrorists that are going to mow down the Catholics. But it turned out being Catholic terrorists. And that man, the cap, the one Catholic who stepped forward um, was saved and all the, all the Protestants uh, terribly were, uh, were mowed down. And, uh, but he says right before the man stepped forward, he, he, he grabbed the, the, um, he was going to step forward, and one of his uh, co-workers, who was a Protestant, grabbed his hand and squeezed it as if to say, no, no, you don't have to do that. We're all in this together. And uh, and then the Catholic felt impelled to witness, and he said, I, you know, I'm, I, I can't sort of out of fear not step forward. He, he misread it like everyone else did. Um, but in that brief moment, um, the, the Protestant and the Catholic uh, sh shared very beautifully uh, their, their common humanity. It was an ecumenical move, uh, moment of, of highest beauty. And I think that's what I'm trying to do. The, the sympathy is toward what is deeply human, what, what we have in common. And uh, yeah, so anyway, I, I'm, I'm glad you noted that. I, uh, and I, I, I recommend that Nobel laureate address for everybody, by the way. It's really, really, really powerful. Yeah, it, yeah, you have this in the book. It's very good. 
It's very good. Well, um, Andrew, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, I look forward to continuing to work with you, uh, recommending you to our listeners and our supporters. And I will have in the show notes a link to your website and you are offering our listeners a 10% discount on purchases. You also have some amazing free videos on YouTube that I'd like our listeners to, to tap into. But uh, if they just read our show notes, they'll have all the links and the, and the uh, access to the code. So thank you again so much for this conversation. It's, your work is very beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I'm really encouraged by that. And so when my, my team hears that, they're going to be really encouraged too. Thanks for all your work. We're just uh, so pleased about everything that you're doing and um, keep it up. And uh, uh, thanks to you and your team. So we look forward to collaborating together. Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. And if you want to help offset our production costs, you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once said, Well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven. 